This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. Views and opinions expressed in the podcast and social media are our own and do not represent that of our places of work. While we make every effort to ensure that the information we are sharing is accurate, we welcome any comments, suggestions, or corrections of errors. Hey everyone, Tara here. And I'm Melissa. And welcome to Nothing Nothing Happens Happens in a a Small small town. Town. So this week, we're going to travel back to Kewanee, Illinois, which is, again, our, our hometown. hometown. So um, we're going to be talking about a serial killer. Ooh, yes. Now, uh, via the courts, there's actually only one person that he is he was found guilty of murdering. But there is high suspicion that he was indeed a serial killer. So, to get into it, we are talking about Arlie Ray Davis. Now, this happened back in August of uh, 1995. Lori Gwynn was at Graf's local tavern. She arrived there about 7.30 to 8 o'clock that evening. Lori began chatting with two gentlemen at the bar. She would play pool with them. Um, Their names were Arlie Ray Davis and James Lindsley. And they played pool till about 11 o'clock that evening. Uh, Lori and Arlie Ray sat together and talked from 11 until closing. James sat close by drinking beers that Arlie Ray had purchased for him. The bartender announced last call around 1.15 a.m. And James walked out to Arlie Ray's car. Arlie Ray and Lori then walked out to the car. Arlie Ray told Lori that he would drive her home because she was too drunk to drive herself. Lori accepted. Once in the car, Arlie Ray told Lori that he would drop James off at Junior Hansen's house where they were staying first. They arrived at Junior's house about 1.45 a.m. Junior was a cousin of Arlie Ray's. Junior was letting them stay on his property and they were using a tent. Lori, Arlie Ray, and James exited the car and walked toward the tent in Hansen's yard. James noticed that Lori was wearing some expensive jewelry while at Graf's, and when she exited, Arlie Ray's car. So she had on some nice jewelry, and he took note of that. Lori and Arlie Ray started arguing because Lori wanted to go home. Lori appeared frightened. Arlie Ray then grabbed her arm, hit her in the face, and squeezed her throat with his hand, while Lori gagged and coughed. With one hand still on Lori's throat, Arlie Ray grabbed her hair with his other hand and pulled her into the tent. Wow, real gentleman here. James stated that he was too scared to help Lori. He just walked back to the car, parked about 15 feet away, and drank some beer. Arlie Ray lit a candle in the tent, which allowed James to see shadows of what was happening. James saw the shadow of Arlie Ray as he removed Lori's pants. He saw Arlie Ray's shadow move up and down on top of Lori. Arlie Ray appeared to be having sexual intercourse with Lori. Lori's body did not move. After a while, Arlie Ray stopped. He later started up again. Lori's body never moved. At some point, James had heard Lori cry out, No, not that. Oh, no, not that. A few hours later, Arlie Ray exited the tent and drove his car to Junior's side of the yard. Um, junior side yard, I mean. 
Uh, Arlie Ray carried Lori's clothed body from the tent and placed it in the car's front seat. Arlie Ray told James to get in the car's back seat, and James complied. Arlie Ray drove to the canal near Anawan. This is actually the Hennepin Canal, where he and James had gone swimming the week before. They arrived at the canal about 6 a.m. Arlie Ray removed Lori's body from the car, placed it on the cement boat dock, and removed Lori's clothing. Arlie Ray and James threw Lori's body into the canal and returned to Junior's house. Arlie Ray was laughing and smiling. At Junior's house, Arlie Ray directed James to buy coffee. James walked to a nearby convenience store, purchased two cups of coffee, and returned. James overheard Arlie Ray tell Junior they were going to go camping. Arlie Ray quickly broke down the tent and loaded into the car. Arlie Ray and James then drove back to the canal area. There, Arlie Ray drove down a gravel road but stopped when he noticed a car behind them. Arlie Ray became very angry, turned around, and sped out onto the highway. Arlie Ray stopped at some pawn shops in Davenport, Iowa. He then showed James a wad of money. Arlie Ray laughed and said, Look, where did I get all this money? The pair had also stopped at rest areas where Arlie Ray threw items into garbage cans. That night, police stopped them in Kansas. The police arrested James on a felony conviction that, or a felony charge pending against him in the state of Washington. James gave his first statement to two officers on August 26, 1995. James then gave his second statement to the same officers the next day. James acknowledged that in his first statement, he admitted telling police that he saw Arlie Ray hit Laurie and have sex with her. Oof. Yeah, this is really quite awful. Yeah. Um, I do remember when this happened back, you know, because I was still living in Kiwani at the time. And I do remember a lot of talk around the town about this it was well and as we'll say later there's a reason because there's a lot of reasons because Lori was a good person and was well known in the community so um and Arlie Ray was definitely not a good person obviously (laughs) and yeah because I mean you you think oh I've drank too much I'm gonna take a ride home because again this is a small town right like I mean Melissa and I have talked about this. You know everybody, or if you don't know them, you have a connection through someone else. Yes. So if you've drank too much at the bar and you need a ride home, if somebody offers it, you feel pretty safe in doing so. Yeah, it's not something where you you really second guess it. You just kind of go, okay, yeah, I I drank too much and I need to to get home without, you know, driving drunk. (laughs) Exactly. I mean, and if you're a good person, of course, mm-hmm. you do not want to drink and drive. Right. I mean, so. Not to say that good people don't get in trouble for it because, you know, you, you think, ah, I'm fine. But mm-hmm. she had the presence of mind to know that she was not fine to drive home, but didn't realize she was getting into a car with a serial killer and his friend who obviously didn't do anything. <laughs> yeah. Good friend, James. Awesome. Yeah, we have got really great friends in Kiwani, mm-hmm. huh? Mm-hmm. This is going, yeah. Not to say that we don't have good friends that it's... still live there. It's just we've 
we after our lovely uh person that was stealing from everybody <laughs> yeah we're, we're we're having some uh interesting characters that are obviously coming out of our hometown but you know this is again we say nothing happens in a small town and in a very sarcastic way exactly (laughs) well and and you know strong personalities and people who are just scared of them I mean definitely James is in the wrong but also you see this a lot you see this plenty especially in um we watch lots of different murder mysteries and also real true crime there are those people who you know if you're scared if you're in a a position like that you do what the evil person says because you might be next right yeah and i mean it's a a case of you know do you do the right thing do you do the wrong thing do you just go with the flow because that's what, you, what know. you know or what you feel safe doing and I mean he did at least tell the police eventually but definitely not soon enough <laughs> definitely all right so as you know they dumped her body into the Hennepin Canal so when looking for some fun facts to discuss uh, I was like well we should talk about the Hennepin Canal right so it's an abandoned waterway in northwest Illinois between the Mississippi River at Rock Island and the Illinois River near the town of Hennepin. <laughs> the entire canal is listed on the National Register of Historic Places. It opened in 1907. Uh, the canal was soon abandoned because of railroad competition. It was resurrected in the late 20th century as a recre- recreational waterway. I can do words. Um, its former name was the Illinois and Mississippi Canal. The main canal is 75.2 miles long, and its feeder canal is 29.3 miles long. There's a state park that spans five counties along this canal, Rock Island, Bureau, Henry, Lee, and Whiteside. And just so you know, Henry County is where Kiwani is located. And uh, where they dumped her in was near Anawan, I believe. Um, the Hennepin Canal was first conceived in 1834 as a connection between the Illinois and Missis- Mississippi Re- River, but there were some financial problems in the state that delayed public works projects. Um, the pr- but their pressure was on because it was, at that time, still cheaper than rail. And they convinced Congress to authorize preliminary surveys on the project around 1871. Construction began in 1892, and the first went boat went through in 1907 as we discussed before um it reduced the distance by barge from chicago to rock island by 419 miles which is pretty considerable while the canal was under construction the corps of engineers undertook a widening of the locks on both of the illinois and mississippi rivers so those locks were 20 and 40 feet wider than the canal locks allowing for larger traffic which then made the um, Hennepin Canal essentially obsolete before it was even used. Um, In the 30s, it was primarily for recreational traffic already. It was open to boat traffic until 1951 at no cost. They actually made ice from the canal's frozen waters and sold it during the winters to help pay for the canal's maintenance cost. That shows you it's not doing too well. Um, At first, uh, so The Hennepin was the first American canal built of concrete without stone-cut facings. Although the Hennepin enjoyed only a limited amount of success, 
engineering innovations used in its construction were a bonus to the construction industry. Um, the canal was used as a training ground for the engineers who later worked on the Panama Canal. So while the Hennepin wasn't used for its intended purpose, at least they got to train on it and then the good old Panama Canal came out of it. Both Hennepin and Panama used concrete lock chambers and both used a feeder canal from a, ma from a man-made lake to water the canals because both needed water to help with the flow uphill. Um, that's a little bit about canals because, you know, the reason they have all the locks is you're changing elevation. And that feeder lake and the feeder canals help make sure that you're not, you know, running into the ground. So there are 33 locks on the canal. Um, all are visible, but the first one on the Illinois River had been underwater from the 30s until recent times. Lock one is only accessible on foot during the winter months because of thick vegetation, the lack of a maintained towpath, and nearby property kind of prevent the access. Um, 14 of the locks have what's called a Marshall Gate, which are unique to Hennepin and were raised and lowered on the horizontal axis. Five of the locks have been restored to working condition, although none of them are actually used for their purpose other than just to show that they are usable, I guess, for that training piece. Um, all of the gates from the remaining locks have been replaced with concrete walls that create some really pretty waterfalls. There's actually, it's really quite scenic and pretty, just not useful as a canal. <laughs> you can boat to a point and then you got to turn around. Um, so it originally also had nine aqueducts, uh, concrete troughs that carried the canal and its traffic across larger rivers and streams. Six of the aqueducts remain while the other three were replaced by pipes. And that's the first part about Hennepin. And back to Arlie Ray. So the state's evidence showed that on Monday, August 21st, 1995, Lori Gwynn was reported missing after she failed to arrive at her job with the county health department. The next day, sometime after 11 a.m., Lori's dead body was found floating in the Hennepin Canal north of Anawan, Illinois. She was nude and missing several pieces of expensive jewelry that she always wore. Oh, boy, we have this lady again. I can never pronounce her name. Oh, good gracious, yes, <laughs> Dr. Violet. I'll just say Henlitia. Hen I don't know. Yeah. Something like that. Henlica, Henlitia. I don't know, but okay, yeah. So this doctor lady. So we the, suck at saying names. <laughs> sorry, we apologize. Uh, the forensic pathologist who performed the autopsy testified that the body was decomposing and swollen. She said that dental records to make positive identification of the body as Lori. Um, she also identified injuries to the body, including torn skin on the right side of the mouth and cheek, broken back fingernails, bruises on the upper abdomen, shoulder, and right side of the head, hemorrhages and tissue compression in the neck, a blunt force injury to the scalp, and bruises in the vagina. She stated that the cause of death was strangulation and blunt force injuries, and that the victim's injuries were consistent with sexual assault. She definitely, it sounds to me like she, she did fought. fight. Yeah, because yeah. that, that whole broken back fingernails, mm -hmm. that's when the fingernail um, basically breaks off going backwards because she's trying to crawl, claw and get yeah. her way out of there. 
Uh, Kiwani police officer testified that Lori was his friend. At 10 p.m. on Sunday, August 20th, 1995, the officer saw Lori at Graff's, and the officer also saw Arlie Ray Davis there. Monica Gratzky testified that she attended bar at Graff's from 5 p.m. on August 20th until 1.30 a.m. on August 21st. About 5.30 p.m., Arlie Ray Davis entered Graff's with another man, James Lindsley. Arlie Ray had been in Graff's several times before and had introduced himself as Jim Smith. Lori entered Graff's around 7.30 or 8 p.m. Lori talked and played with pool with Arlie Ray and James for several hours. Later, Monica saw Arlie Ray and Lori kiss. About 1.30 a.m., just before Monica closed the tavern, she saw Arlie Ray, Lori, and James leave together. When Monica herself left the tavern after them, they were gone, but Lori's car was still in the parking lot. Lori's car was later recovered from the parking lot. Um, Junior Hansen, so the, the cousin of Arlie Ray. The one who Arlie Ray was camping in his backyard. Yeah. Um. He testified that Arlie Ray had arrived at his home unannounced and asked to stay through Labor Day weekend. Um, again, Labor Day is the big hog days, you know, celebration. So, you know, family coming into town to... I'm going to stay through this and then I'll go on elsewhere. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, Labor Day, besides the hog day celebration, most uh, classes will hold reunions. Yeah. Families will hold reunions during that time. Heck, I went to a funeral over for Labor Day weekend. So it's really just that time that people are going to get together. So it makes sense. Yeah. So Arlie Ray slept on Junior's front porch for a few days. After that, James joined Arlie Ray at Junior's house, and they erected a tent in Junior's yard. On August 20th, Junior arrived home around 10.30 p.m. and went to sleep. He heard nothing unusual during the night. At 6.45 a.m., on August 21st, Junior watched as Arlie Ray quickly loaded the tent into his car. Arlie Ray told Junior that he and James would be renting a campsite in a nearby park, most likely Johnson's. Um, Arlie Ray and James left by 7 a.m. Junior did not see Arlie Ray again until the trial. So, Chrisinda Harris is a neighbor of Junior's, and she lives right across the street. She identified Arlie Arlie Ray and James as the two men who had been living in the tent in Junior's yard. Um, in their early hours of August 21st, Chrisinda was awake sewing a bridesmaid's dress. She took a break and went outside of her front steps about 2 a.m. While sitting there, she heard a woman loudly cry out in a pleading voice, no, not that, oh no, not that. Chrisinda described the voice as coming from the tent in Junior's yard. She heard nothing else. Fearful, Crescinda crawled back into her house and went to bed. She did not call police because she had no telephone. Man, you, you wonder if she'd been able to call the police, if she would have. Yeah. And that hmm, might not have saved her, but... but yeah. At 6.30 a.m. the same morning, Crescinda was leaving to drive her son to work. She and Arlie Ray parked... Uh, she saw Arlie Ray's car parked on Junior's side terrace, where she had never seen it parked before. 
Cresinda returned home 15 minutes later and saw that the car had been moved to the driveway with its motor running. She observed Arlie Ray hurriedly break down his tent and place it in back of the car. James was standing nearby. Cresinda went back into her house. She never saw Arlie Ray or James at Junior's house again. A vaginal swab taken during Lori's autopsy contained seminal material and sperm cells. So this part um, kind of goes into like the DNA and comparison. Um, they could not exclude Arlie Ray as the source of semen, but they also couldn't necessarily confirm. So it was kind of a... Um, it was degraded and insufficient to because perform. Of, yeah, because she had been in the canal. Yeah. Um, a police officer for the city of Coffeyville, Kansas, testif- testified that he pulled Arlie Ray and James over on August 21st. The officer took James into custody on an outstanding warrant from the state of Washington, but did not detain Arlie Ray. A police officer from the city of Tucson, Arizona, testified that he approached Arlie Arlie Ray for questioning on 1 a.m. on August 29th. Tucson authorities then held Arlie Ray in custody after discovering that he was wanted in, uh, on an Illinois warrant charging him with Lori's murder. So when they were stopped in Kansas, they picked up James, but they let Arlie Ray go mm-hmm. until after, of course, James made the lovely statements and they were able to give up, put him on a warrant. So, James testified for the prosecution. Um, In August of 1995, James was living at the rescue mission in Galesburg, Illinois, when Arlie Ray picked him up and drove him to Junior's home in Kiwani. For the first few days, James slept in Arlie Ray's car, and Arlie Ray slept on the porch. They then erected the tent in Junior's yard, and James slept in the tent one night, then slept on Junior's son's house for a night. In his testimony, James acknowledged that he had mental problems, suffered from hallucinations, and had been committed to mental hospitals throughout his life. At times, he had difficulty remembering past events. James also has epilepsy, for which he takes prescription drugs, which he should not mix with alcohol. He tends to get confused if he drinks alcohol while taking his medication. James further testified that when he was in custody because, like Arlie Ray, he was charged with Lori's murder. His attorney had advised him of his Fifth Amendment right against self-incrimination and that anything he said in court could be used against him. James still wanted to testify. James stated that he had no agreement with the Henry County State's attorney regarding the charges against him, nor did James expect anything in return for his testimony. The state's attorney had offered to recommend a sentence of 20 years imprisonment if James pled guilty to murder. James actually rejected that offer. On cross-examination, James explained that he was arrested in Kansas because he had a felony charge pending against him in Washington. Um, and basically, the uh, they asked him, in fact, are you hoping if you do good or if you do good, you do well here, you will get um, a lighter sentence. And he said no. And the state's attorney uh, to help you out. 
no, I have to face those charges out there just as well as I do here. So yeah, he seemed to barely be have a an awakening, if you will, a I I need to just stop and I think do I, right. Yeah, I don't remember. Do you remember what his felony charge was out in Washington? No. They never really seemed to get into that. They didn't, but you know, he obviously has some mental issue problems. He's got he's on medication, he's delusional at times so I can only imagine though if he really remembers this it probably and this is where I go into my own hypotheses here it's Mm. like I think this really shook him yeah I mean yes he didn't call the cops he went and got coffee and didn't say anything when he got those but the fact that he went from shirking the law to being like nah Mm -hmm. I I need to pay for this makes me believe that he at least had some kind of an awakening that people deserve more from him. Yeah. Yeah. I I mean, he definitely seems like he's trying to help and in getting Arlie Ray. Make amends, if you will, by getting Arlie Ray convicted because he realized he knew, like he said, that opening statements that we gave were his um, accounting Mm -hmm. that he gave when he was arrested and I think you know it shook he already had that fear sure he didn't help during but he was really afraid of him yeah and a few days later he's just like I need to I need to come clean I need to say you know this isn't right I need to stand up mm-hmm. and he finally got the courage to do so mm-hmm. all right so back to the Hennepin Canal um I just found it really interesting I don't know maybe I'm just a canal geek but um, like I said before, it was finished in 1907, and the Corps of Engineers could not wait until the spring for the first boat to pass out in the canal. Why couldn't they wait? I'm pretty sure it was political pressure. <laughs> Imagine that, even back in 1907. The first steamer to use the canal was the SS Marion, carrying government officials. Of course, there we go again with politi- politics was probably the reason. This was the first boat to travel the entire length of the canal. It left on November 8th and returned on the 15th. The canal was not completely filled at the time, so each section's water had to be moved with the locks for the boat to pass. I would love to see that, because you're just like, and now we move the water here. (laughs) (laughs) Anyhow, so um, the boat had to be equipped with iron guards to break the formed ice as well, because in Illinois in November, it's cold. cold. Colder <laughs> than here in Maryland, that's for sure. I mean, it's pretty cold here in Maryland. We've already actually even gotten freezing. Yeah. Yep. So when it reached lock number 28, it actually had to push the lock open because of the ice. When they reached the last five miles of her journey, there was still a problem with the amount of water. At this point in time, it was too much water, <laughs> and they couldn't pass under the Rock Island Bridge. As a result, the people and the sa- basically the first people and the sailors found were asked to come aboard to make a ship sink slightly. They just added more people. <laughs> I just I found that hilarious. We need to make this go. Ice, this, that, and the other. Oh crap! Now we can't get underneath the bridge. Hey, you, get over here and get on the boat. So guests at the opening ceremony included Governor Charles S. Deenan, or Deneen, sorry, former Minnesota Governor Samuel R. Van Sant, who was born at Rock Island, and Congressman Frank Oren Loden. Miss Grace Wheeler, the daughter of the chief engineer, opened the gates for the first time. So 
in the early years, as I talked about before, it was pretty difficult for the Hennepin Canal to get up and running. Well, one of the things that also led to its demise was um, 1930 marked the beginning of the Great Depression. The Depression affected local businessmen and residents in that year. Overall tonnage on the canal decreased by 40%, and only 18,142 tons were transported. A telephone system was built by the Corps of Engineers so that a lockman could be advised in advance when a boat was coming through the locks. There were 750-pound poles spanning across 104 miles of the canal. Some of these poles remain standing today. I don't remember that. See, one thing, Missy and I were talking at the beginning, because I swear your folks had a that, that camper they had, the trailer. Think, yeah. It was on one of the bits of the canal. I, yeah, I think it was you're right. There right. In I, yeah. Yeah. And I, I just don't remember that part, but it's also been a few years and I slept a few times between now and then. I had only gone out there a handful of times, too. Right, because so it was your folks yeah. thing, not yours. So right. we were trying to figure out and remember what all was going on with that. And but, at that point, I wasn't living in Kiwani. I think I was living in, I think I was living in Iowa at that point. So. Yeah, that would, yeah. Uh, yeah, because you were living in Davenport, maybe? Yeah, uh, I think so. Another town mentioned in this. <laughs> so the Corps of Engineers employed 50 men full-time year-round to operate and maintain the canal. Uh, the Corps actually divided the canal in sections. They had lockmen's and, uh, lockmen and patrolmen. Some of their tasks include patrolling the banks, repairing brakes, operating the locks, servicing the phones. So you can imagine this would take a bit of uh, money to pay for all these guys. They, had, they were provided houses, barns, warehouses, sheds, and workshops. And all of the houses had concrete wall, walks and many other concrete things. I think that's funny to call out concrete things, but what do I know? They were never wired with electricity but, and did not have indoor plumbing. So this sounds like a really awesome place to live. <laughs> but it also was 1930, so it was still in that plumbing and houses was still relatively new, what have you. So um, the canal was not only supposed to transport coal, but salt, grain, gravel, iron, steel, and many other crops and minerals, but it was, even from the beginning, considered a place for recreation. Um, family and friends would participate in picnics, swimming, and most noteworthy, fishing. Fishing uh, caught on the Hennepin Canal still hold Illinois records. Um, so I guess because, you know, it's just easier to fish in a canal versus those rivers. And back when it was still in operation, these fish that hadn't actually traversed between the rivers, um, found it to be interesting. And actually swimming was so popular at one point in time that the local YMCA's held swimming classes in the canal. Interesting. I can't imagine swim. I mean, I guess... I was used to using the pool. <laughs> no, it was like, you go to the Y to use the pool, right? Yeah. Well, in 1930, I guess, I guess the Y really, because isn't that kind of sort of a staple? Every Y yeah. I've been to has a pool. It does, yeah. So I Now guess... I want to go look and see when did Ys start putting pools in them. Right. <laughs> it's, it is on the strange list for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and even, again, the canal wasn't as successful as planned. Some real good came from it besides the wise using them, what have you, um, in 1920, um, Ray Meckling and Fred Wolf of Rock Falls began a barge line. So it did create some commerce in that way. 
It required smaller barges, so the two bought a steamboat and began erecting barges. They even bought gravel and transported it to people who were interested in buying some. Besides gravel, they shipped steel and coal for the International Harvester Company. And as I like, like I said, the traffic on the canal was never heavy, and critics complained that it was obsolete before it was constructed because it was too small for the, it, it was more set for early days of can canaling, but it came out later, and boats had gotten larger than they could actually safely traverse the canal. It was a source of frustration and ultimately a failure. Um, many have said, had the canal been constructed in the 1830s, 40s, or 50s, or even the 60s, as originally suggested, it probably would have had a much greater economic potential. Um, the canal was intended to connect the upper Mississippi Valley to the Atlantic Ocean, actually. So way back then, they were thinking about digging canals across the rest of those states. So Indiana, Ohio, Pennsylvania, and getting all the way to the Atlantic. That didn't happen. Actually, I'm not even sure. Now I need to look again. Because I did some... Re <laughs> I was like really focusing on the Hennepin Canal because that's where Lori Ray was, fa Lori was found. Okay. Um, but Lori Gwynn. I didn't get into whether we had a lot of other canals. Because over in Europe, I mean, canals are huge. Yeah. When I lived in England, there are people who live on canal boats. It's cool. You can go out and do a day of bunting and boats and what have you. Huh. Hmm. Anyhow, so... Yeah, they they really they were thinking about it in 1948 of expanding and making it bigger, and that would have cost 12 million dollars back then, which you can imagine is not just a drop in the hat. So, in April 7th on ni in 1948, the Corps of Engineers issued a navigation notice that put the canal on a limited service basis. All the chaos led to the suspension of all lock operations and non-essential maintenance in 1951. Legislators in Washington, D.C. and Springfield were getting innumerable letters and petitions from Illinois citizens and conservationists. These groups organized campaigns with Save the Canal as their theme. The legislators of Illinois began to plan a plan to take over the canal for recreation use. As of 1970, full ownership had been given to the state of Illinois for the use of the waterway for recreational use and under the jurisdiction of the Department of Conservation. Um, they, <laughs> they still wanted another $22 million in 1970 to get the canal into shape. Today, it's just used for recreation. Uh, there are trails along the canal that allow people to walk, jog, bike. Um, it, pretty much its entire length has been paved. During the winter months, the trail is heavily used for snowmobiling. Fishing is still popular. However, swimming, swimming which was the cornerstone Main, for the yeah. Y, is now prohibited. Huh. Though we hear Arlie Ray did that in 1995. It was probably prohibited then. Yeah. In, I kind of remember, again, I, we stayed there one night, Sean and I, way back when. Yeah. So I think it was prohibited even then, and we just built a big fire. Yeah. Because, yeah. you know. I don't remember ever swimming in it, but I do remember, like, maybe tubing. I, I, I think tubing happens there. And maybe some of our friends who still live there can tell us. Yeah. <laughs> maybe we should have asked them before we had held this podcast. Yeah. But it really wasn't, like, the main objective. Yeah. I was just truly interested in the canal's history at the time. And now I'm questioning. I should have asked more questions. <laughs> oh, right. well. So that's it for the Hennepin Canal. And back to Arlie Ray Davis. 
So Arlie Ray testified on his own behalf and denied any knowledge or involvement in Lori's death. In August of 1995, Arlie Ray was staying at Junior Hansen's house with James. Arlie Ray and James were at Graf's on August 20th. There they met Lori, with whom they played pool, at about 1 or 1.30 a.m. As Arlie Ray was leaving the tavern, he asked the bartender whether any other taverns were open. The bartender replied that Zodiac's was a late-night establishment, but she did not know how late it stayed open on Sunday nights. Arlie Ray then asked Lori if she went to meet him at Graf's the following Friday night. She agreed. Arlie Ray, Lori, and James then walked outside. James says he was tired and went to the car. Lori told Arlie Ray that she would see him the next Friday, and they said goodbye to each other. At that moment, an older car drove by and honked its horn. Lori waved at, a, at the car, which pulled off into a lot across the street. Arlie Ray went to his car, and he and James returned to Junior's house. Arlie Ray attested that he did not know what happened to Lori after he drove away from the tavern. According to Arlie Ray, after they arrived at Junior Hansen's house, uh, James slept in the tent and Arlie Ray slept in the car. Arlie Ray did not hear anything unusual during the night. The next day, um, Arlie Ray awoke at daybreak, at which was his custom. He and James broke down the tent and packed it into the car. Arlie Ray sent James for coffee and to get directions to James's sister's house. Arlie Ray decided to leave that morning, even though he had made plans to meet Lori the next Friday. Arlie Ray stated that he and James drove towards Interstate 80. When Arlie Ray missed the on-ramp for Interstate 80, he turned his car around on a gravel road. Arlie Ray noticed a driver of another vehicle look at him as he did this. Arlie Ray then proceeded to Rock Island, Illinois, where James unsuccessfully attempted to reach his sister. They then drove to Kansas, and James was arrested. Following James' arrest, Arlie Ray went to Las Vegas, Nevada for a few days, then to Tucson. Police arrested Arlie Ray in Tucson. The defense rested, and the jury retired to deliberate after hearing closing arguments and receiving its instructions. Um, Arlie Ray's... Bifurcated. Bifurcated, thank you. Capital sentence hearing commenced. At the first phase, the jury found Arlie Ray eligible for the death penalty. Arlie Ray then waived the jury for the second aggravation mitigation phase. Yeah, bifurcated just means it's in two parts. Gotcha. Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Um, In aggravation, the state initially presented brief victim impact testimony from Lori's father, sister, and mother. The state also offered additional testimony from James. James stated that after Arlie Ray picked him up in Galesburg, they went to several bars where Arlie Ray became pretty drunk. While drunk, Arlie Ray told James that he had killed several women around Peoria, Illinois. Arlie Ray smiled as he said this. James did not know whether Arlie Ray was serious or joking. James claims that he informed the police in Kansas about the statement, but acknowledged that the statement did not appear in the police's written records. The state presented Peoria Detective Terry Pyatt as its last witness in aggravation. Over the Arlie Ray's continuing objection, Pyatt testified regarding his conversations with several Peoria area prostitutes. 
Five prostitutes stated that Arlie Ray had physically assaulted them. A sixth prostitute told Pyatt that while in Arlie Ray's car, she saw handcuffs and a photograph of a missing Peoria woman who appeared dead. Pyatt further testified um, that related conversations that he had with Arlie Ray's former girlfriend, Connie Waldron, um, Waldron had told them that among Arlie Ray's belongings, she found two Polaroid snapshots of what appeared to be nude deceased women bound around their throats, arms, body, and legs. Waldron thought that the women had an orange rope around their throats and that the photos had been taken inside of Arlie Ray's car. Arlie Ray took the photos away from Waldron. In mitigation, Arlie Ray's mother, Dorothy Davis, testified that Arlie Ray, her only son, was born in Gillette, Arkansas in 1955. She described Arlie Ray as a good boy who received grades of B's and C's in school. While in high school, Arlie Ray worked as a janitor. Arlie Ray dropped out of high school in the 10th grade. He then lived at home when his mother worked and worked at a laundromat and general store. Mrs. Davis related that Arlie Ray had eight children. Eight. That's a lot of kids. By four different women throughout his lifetime. He married his first wife at age 21, and they had four children together. The family often visited with Mrs. Davis, and she thought that Arlie Ray was loving towards his children. After a divorce in 1980, Arlie Ray returned home to live with his mother. Arlie Ray then married his second wife, wife with whom he had two children. Mrs. Davis thought that Arlie Ray treated these children well. For a time, seven children were living with Arlie Ray, including Arlie Ray's six children and his second wife's child from a previous marriage. Again, a lot of kids to be living in the same house. (laughs) After Arlie Ray's second divorce, he moved in with his mother, who was then living in Illinois. I'm seeing a little bit of a pattern here. Just a little. Let's go back and live with mom. Arlie Ray had a seventh child with a third woman in late 1994. Arlie Ray entered into a relationship with Connie Waldron. They had a child together. When Waldron became pregnant, her mother would no longer let her stay with her, so Waldron moved in with Mrs. Davis and Arlie Ray. Later, when Waldron struck one of her children in the eye, the Department of Children and Family Services removed Waldron's three children from her care. Waldron signed papers giving up her parental rights to her children. Arlie Ray, however, never gave up his rights to Waldron's child. That just, I'm, that just is crazy. That is crazy to me. It's like this woman, you wonder how their relationship really was. Even though mom is saying how good of a guy he is. He's the one who struck the kid. Her kids get taken away. Well, no, it said she struck. I I think it did say she struck her child. I, I Oh, she struck. Sorry. Back it up. I'm bad. (laughs) But there, I mean, in any case, I, I don't know what his relationship was to his children. Keep in mind, this is his mother talking. She is definitely um, talking for her son. On cross-examination, Mrs. Davis explained that Arlie Ray would support his children while he was with them. She may have told a detective that Arlie Ray does not pay rent or help with chores. Mrs. Davis acknowledged that she once threatened to cut Arlie with Ray with a paring knife if he did not leave her alone. Paring knife. Ooh. 
um, that Arlie Ray had charged $3,000 to her credit card, which he never paid, and he would stay out till 5 or 6 a.m. and that he could be lazy. So glowing comments (laughs) and trying to make sure he doesn't get the death penalty or the mitigation phase, phase, if you will, where please take pity on him. Mm-hmm. But the police are like, yeah, but she said these things before. So, yeah, she just doesn't want him to die, which I get that. Raymond Straight Matter, uh, Arlie Ray's uncle, testified that there was nothing unusual about Arlie Ray when he was a boy. Straight Matter thought that Arlie Ray got along fine with his mother, former wives, and children. He never saw Arlie Ray act violently. As an adult, Arlie Ray worked as a laborer and janitor, but not often. Arlie Ray had no disability that prevented him from working, but Straight Matter thought that Arlie Ray would have difficulty finding employment due to his lack of education and skills. On cross-examination, Straight Matter stated that Arlie Ray's children received state aid, so he was not paying for all these eight children. Yeah, I I wonder about this. Having been um, a daughter of divorce, my parents, when my dad wasn't always good about paying for child support, but I don't remember us actually getting state aid until he passed away. But I'm guessing, here I am making a guess, um, that if your if the parent is destitute then and unable to pay then the state does step in yeah it makes sense i mean the children still need to get fed and a roof still put over their head and clothed uh donald fulton a jailer was recalled to testify at sentencing during the seven months that arlie ray was incarcerated at henry county jail fulton never saw him violate any rules or engage in any conduct that was would be cause for discipline. In Fulton's opinion, Arlie Ray had adjusted well to incarceration. Wow, glowing review. That's a lovely thing to be known for. Hey, he's good at being incarcerated. After considering the evidence, the circuit court found no mitigation, mitigating factors sufficient to preclude imposition of the death penalty and sentenced Arlie Ray to death for the murder of Lori. The circuit court also imposed prison terms for aggravated criminal sexual assault, aggravated kidnapping, robbery, and concealment of a homicidal death. So y'all may think that I would go on another tangent about the Hennepin Canal, but since we mentioned Peoria, while it is not a small town, it is a small city in Illinois, and I remember as a kid hearing about Peoria's ties to vaudeville. Apparently there is a saying called, will it play in Peoria? It's a figure of speech that is traditionally used to ask whether a given product, person, promotional theme, or event will appeal to mainstream United States or across a broad range of demographic and psychographic groups. The question actually came uh, from a theme repeated by characters in Horatio Alger Jr.'s novel $500 and Malcolm Marlowe's Secret, which was first published in 1890. Alger was a best-selling author of the 19th century, especially among young people, and his books were widely quoted. In the book, a group of actors play in Peoria, Illinois, occasionally occasioning utterances such as, well, we should be playing in Peoria. We shall play at Peoria. Appropriate as symbolic of reception by mainstream America, these declarations were alluded to in paraphrase, eventually resulting in the question. Will it play in Peoria? (laughs) So um, 
basically people judged Peoria and the way Peorians in the 20th century usually seem to judge themselves. That is dull, banal, and provincial. Historically, however, whiskey, gambling, and prostitution gave the city a reputation as being quote-unquote wide open. Um, and only since the 1950s was the lid put on um, Peoria, but the reputation and thus the jibes has existed since of vaudeville. And a 1945 comment in American Notes and Queries offers a different point of view. Peoria has been an old standby with comedians for years, but not only because of the O sound, it is a weird word with lots of vowels and not so many consonants, nor because the four vowel sound gave it a really nice noisy resonance, but largely, I suspect, because of the fact that it is a whiskey town and a river town and not particularly famous for what is known as genteel traditions. The phrase originated during the vaudeville area and was populated, populi popularized, I can do words again, in movies by Groucho Marx. The belief was that if a new show was successful in Peoria, new, uh, a main Midwestern stop for vaudeville acts would be successful anywhere, and it also translated into the comedic scene. I actually didn't include this, but there was actually a couple articles I found from various um, well-known comedians, including Richard Pryor, hmm. that point back to Peoria. So, um, it, and then it kind of, with vaudeville, it actually had this extra piece. Um, Jack Mabley, writing for the Chicago Tribune, concluded that if it plays in Peoria, it has good taste. But a more apt meaning is, according to James C. Ballow, former dean of Peoria's Bradley University Graduate School, um, that Peoria is a tough audience. In other words, if it bombed in Peoria or it was great in Peoria, had recognizable meaning from one coast to the other. Um, so, it, and actually, that Will It Play in Peoria moved on from vaudeville, um, and since vaudeville left Peoria, I mean, the, the movie theaters kind of got rid of vaudeville over time. It's been used and adopted by politicians, pollsters, and promoters to question the potential mainstream acceptance of anything new. Currently, the stereotype of non-humorous people has been around for many decades. Um, so that whole with Will It Play in Peoria has now become something that the politicians say. I personally remember as a kid um, hearing that Peoria was famous for throwing rotten vegetation, particularly tomatoes, at performances they disliked. And I remember thinking as a kid, who is bringing vegetables to the show? <laughs> But apparently, I've looked up on I've looked this up, and actually, pelting unlucky lucky victims with rotten produce is one of our oldest forms of expression, older even than tomato cultivation. Rotten tomatoes, and you may have heard that phrase used by a popular group to decide if a movie is good or bad, mm -hmm. are often associated with Shakespeare's Globe Theater in Elizabethan London, but in actuality. Tomatoes were still uncommon and weren't even mentioned in the first English cookbook till 1752, nearly 150 years later. Huh. So, sorry, it didn't start with the bard. Interesting. <laughs> <laughs> but the practice of throwing produce predated the tomato entirely. The first reference came in AD 63, when, you're going to have to help me here with this one, Vespasianus Caesar Augustus was hit with turnips in the midst of a riot in 
Had rum. Okay, I do had, not know had, my. I, yeah, this sucks. Had rumitum. You'd think rumitum. I would have worked on this a little more because I was here. I grilled you all up, and then I can't say words. <laughs> but essentially, throwing rotten things at somebody's lasts a long time. I think nowadays, people throw what they have available to them. I had read through a bunch of other little uh, snippets, and they were talking about people throwing chestnuts and other things, <laughs> and. Somebody came replied back, weren't chestnuts expensive? Like, yeah, but it might have been what they were selling at the theater at the time. Hmm. So, yeah, I know that there are places like when I used to go to football games, they would actually take the tops. If you got a, a, a bottle of water or a, a bottle of beer or anything like that, you, they wouldn't leave you with the top because they didn't want you throwing it into the field. Oh. So, because hmm. I was like, why can't I have the top? Because I'm, well... Um, a mess. <laughs> I trip on myself. I kind of need to cover this water. <laughs> but anyhow. And so that led into Peoria has been used as a test market. So it's long been used as a prototypical American city because of its representative demographics as a, and its Midwestern culture, which is commonly perceived as mainstream. As a result, it's traditionally been one of the country's leading test markets. In the 80s and 90s, back to the comedians, comedians like Sam Kinison and musicians such as Bob Dylan, Robert Plant, Metallica, and Phil Collins all perfected and launched concert tours in Peoria. During presidential campaigns, major TV networks would visit Peoria to gauge the response to everyday Americans on national issues and political candidates. However, the demographic changes have made the city a little less representative of all of America as a whole, and therefore it's a little less used as a test market. But that happens to be when I lived there. <laughs> so I actually remember, because um, I traveled a lot, um, which was odd for not making much money, but I was foreign exchange to Austria when I was in high school, and we moved away and moved back. And I distinctly remember a wider range, because what would I think of as a preteen or a teen? I pay attention to candy. <laughs> I remembered a wider range of candy bars available in Kiwani than anywhere else. Like, I remember not being able to find a whatchamacallit anywhere else. And people yeah. like, what's that? Well, it's a whatchamacallit. It's awesome. <laughs> and, and one in particular I really remember, I remember commercials for Hershey's new cookies and cream candy bar and was like, whoop-de-frickin'-do. They've had it here for like five <laughs> years. So, yeah, that's pretty interesting. I never knew all that. Yeah, I remember the test market thing, and I remember that, I, I guess, I didn't find any articles particularly about Peoria and the tomatoes, but that was the piece of folklore I had heard. Mm -hmm. I did hear produce, though. Hmm. So apparently, you pack your little snacks to go to the theater with you and make sure you have a couple of rotten things in case you don't like it. <laughs> I can't imagine walking around with rotten fruit. <laughs> I, I'm just sitting here vegetables thinking just to throw at people. I mean, I, I I guess times are different now. I guess. I mean, if you want to make a statement, <laughs> roll around carrying rotten vegetables in case you need to throw them at somebody. <laughs> Very interesting. Hey, what can I say? So I'm going to start with a little article from the Quad City Times. Um basically talking about Arlie Ray as a serial killer. 
Uh, a Peoria police investigator is 100% sure that Arlie Ray Davis was a serial killer. Davis, 46, died October 13th from a parent heart attack while on death row at the Pata- Pontiac. Pontiac Correctional Center. He died five days before his scheduled clemency hearing before the Illinois Prisoner Review Board. While Davis was sent to death row for the 1995 rape and murder of Lori Gwynn of Kewanee, Illinois, police believed he actually was responsible for the death or disappearances of as many as eight Peoria women. Peoria police investigator Terry Pyatt and you may remember him talking in the trial, uh, said that Davis's death does put an end to the eight murder investigations. In fact, he said Davis's demise could help solve the cases. From our perspective, this is in no way over. To the day I die, I hope it will be my hope that the bodies will be found or someone who is afraid of Arlie Ray will come forward now that he's gone. Pyatt said he is certain that four of the eight women who were murdered or who disappeared died at Davis's hand. All eight of the women have been linked to Davis and in most were last seen with him before they vanished. The women, many of them prostitutes, began disappearing in 1993. The disappearances stopped, he said, when Davis was arrested in the murder of Lori Gwynn. Almost a year before the arrest in Henry County, Peoria police were trying to find enough evidence to charge Davis with the murder of Ginny Miles, who is 26, whose nude body was found in a shallow grave in Menard County in 1994. After the Gwynn conviction, Peoria police were given results of DNA testing in the Miles case, and Davis's DNA was found on the body, but it wasn't enough. We are able to link him to her with the DNA evidence, but you need more than that charge, Pyatt said. He expects Davis's DNA would also be found on the bodies of Stephanie Gibson, Loretta Tinkham, uh, Cheryl Merwin, and Cheryl Cheryl Murray. Their bodies are still missing. Two women testified at the Gwynn trial that they knew all about Davis's work. They told a Henry County judge that Davis raped and tried to kill them too. One of the women lost an eye when Davis strangled her. Jeez. Um, Yeah, somehow she managed to tell him that her husband saw her get into his car and that he wrote down the license plate number. We believe this saved her life because he ended up dumping her in a parking lot. Uh, basically, his style has been to lure females to secluded places and strangle them. Most were sexually assault, sexual assault victims like Lori Gwynn. As for the trophies, we never found anything, Pyatt said. We took his car apart bolt by bolt and never found anything. So they believe he t- took things off of everyone, but as we already knew from Lori, he took those and pawned them. So I'm wondering if there weren't more pawn there probably were yeah they, at first you know you would think that a lot of serial killers do keep trophies mm-hmm. and you know we talk about the fact that he well he died he died in 2002 so this was seven years after Lori's murder um but you may remember from our last discussions about kiwani that illinois got away with uh got rid of the death penalty so they mm-hmm. were having clemency hearings 
I'm glad he died before he had a clemency hearing because yeah. he's like, he doesn't deserve it. <laughs> yeah. And as, I mean, he he's where he should be. <laughs> right. I mean, you want him to suffer, but at the same time, can you really, can you imagine if he had gotten out? Uh, no, don't want to. <laughs> yeah. You wonder if he would have gone on killing. So only five women were named. Um, it does say that there were eight investigations, but I couldn't find anything on the additional three. Um, but just to talk a little bit about the victims here in this case, um, Lori Gwynn, um, as you know, she was from Kiwani. Her father is the former Kiwani police chief, uh, Cliff Bernold. Um, Terry Gwynn is her ex-husband and Daniel Gwynn is his son. Afterwards, um, Terry Gwynn actually sued uh, the bar graphs for damages incurred by the loss of Lori and uh, for his son because obviously she used to support her son and her son is, you know, now without a mother, without a mother. And I don't know what happened in that case. I didn't I couldn't find any results on it, but I can understand him doing that. Uh, Lori worked at the Henry County Health Department for at least 10 years. She was the manager of the homemaker division. Um, she was well loved by her coworkers. Everything that I read said that she, you know, everybody that worked with her loved her. Yeah, I remember reading um, one of the anniversaries of her death. I believe there was a thing where they got together around her mm -hmm. uh, grave site. So, I mean, she just was a really nice person. Mm -hmm. So while you could say that, Arlie Ray's primary targets had been prostitutes. They say that people do um, escalate. They go from um, what is relatively low risk for them victims, people who live high risk lives, mm -hmm. prostitutes, and then they move on to she was probably just a really good just wrong place, wrong, wrong time. Yeah. She was a, a target of opportunity. Convenience, yeah. Convenient. Um, so Lori attended Blackhawk Community College. She was named Woman of, the, Woman of the Year in 1991 for the Kiwani Business and Professional Women's Organization. And you do kind of wonder with Lori, was it that um, she was so well cared for that this really kind of helped get him um, arrested? Um, she also enjoyed golfing, camping, and craft work. Um, Jenny Miles, we kind of talked about her in the article. They found um, her in a, uh... She was found by two fishermen in March of 1994 in Salt Creek. Uh, family members said that she frequented the same bars as Arlie Ray. Um, her case is considered solved because they found his DNA on her. Um, but that was about all I could find on Jenny Miles. Um, yeah, she was actually found before he died. And there was actually in deep into the court documents where they really go on and on and on about all the the um, DNA and what have you. There were some discussions about he he refused to provide extra DNA samples after the original. And it was with regard to um, Jenny Miles, I believe. Mm hmm. Uh, Stephanie Gibson, uh, she was born in 1947, and she uh, has been missing since 1995. She was 48 years at the old at the time of disappearance. Her son is Leslie Kildare. Uh, Gibson was last seen departing Memories, a bar in the 800 block of Main Street in Peoria at a 
approximately 2.30 a.m. on July 8, 1995. She was accompanied by Arlie Reed Davis at the time of her disappearance. They rode away in his car, a light blue four-door 1979 Dodge Dart. Um, Davis claimed that he and Gibson visited Kingston Mines in Illinois afterwards, but no evidence was discovered to support his statement. Gibson has never been heard from again. Um, her son has actually been kind of a, he's definitely been following the case. He's been trying to advocate for his mother. She had some mental issues. And she was not a prostitute. No. And if you look at the times, she was killed or she went missing a month before Lori. Mm-hmm. Um, the next victim, Loretta Tinkham. Uh, or Loretta Skeeter or Loretta York. She went by three different names. Now, she was thought to be a prostitute, um, but we're not sure on that. Uh, She was born in 1963, and she's been missing since uh, November 3rd, 1994. She was 30 years old at the time of disappearance. Uh, Tinkham was last last seen in Peoria on November 3rd, 1994, and she has never been heard from again. Um, that was, again, another one where I couldn't find a lot of information on her other than this. Um, I mean, with Harley Ray passing, uh, you wonder how much more would have been um, continued to be litigated mm-hmm. if he was still alive. Um, Cheryl, the next one, Cheryl Merwin, a.k.a. Cheryl Walker, a.k.a. Sherry, she's one who her um, case was solved by a DNA, DNA. test mm-hmm. post um, him passing, I believe. She's another one that he fought to not get his DNA um, given out after he was convicted, not during the conviction. So, yeah, so she was a missing case. Um, but she was found, and they did do some DNA testing where they did find Harley Ray's DNA. Um this next article is about her. Yes. Um, so this is from the Peoria Journal Star. For more than half of her life, Bobby Locke grew up wondering what happened to her mother. Some answers came for the 18-year-old woman Monday. This is from July 17th of 2003. When she learned of a skull discovered nearly two years ago in shallow waters of Kickapoo Creek was identified as that of 35-year-old Cheryl Walker, also known as Cheryl Merwin who was reported missing in early June 1994. Police investigated the disappearance, and while various rumors spread about the woman, who often hitchhiked and sometimes prostituted herself to feed her children, police held tight that she may have been the victim of the late Arlie Ray Davis. Davis, who died in prison, this was uh, the year previous to this article, was convicted of murdering Lori Gwynn. He has been suspected of killing a Peoria woman and the disappearance of several others, including Walker. Sherry knew Arlie Ray, and at first, uh, and that's the first person that came to mind, said uh, Walker's longtime friend, Roy Bailey, who Locke had, and her older sister refer to as Uncle Mike. <laughs> so Bailey and other friends said that Walker liked to party, and she likely ran into Davis while partying or prostituting. Still, she always would, uh, she would never leave her children. She would leave them in someone's care and frequently call to check on them. So after a few days had passed and Walker didn't call, they knew something was wrong. 
At the time, others claimed that they heard Walker may have overdosed on a combination of drugs and alcohol and her body had been dumped somewhere. And there were uh, things linking um, uh, Walker's husband. He had said shortly after her uh, disappearance that he could kill her and get away with it because he's crazy. So there was some doubt that it would be Arlie Ray and said it would be her ex-husband. But um, the authorities will likely never know Walker's true fate. Um, Her death is considered undetermined. The discovery brings all the missing women back to the forefront, Peoria County Sheriff Mike McCoy said Wednesday. Law law enforcement officials spent numerous hours combing miles of creek bottom for more bones after a fisherman found the skull a quarter mile south of Illinois Route 8 and half a mile west of Taylor Road in Kickapoo Creek on 17 August 2001. Sheriff's Department initially turned the skull over to Illinois State Police Crime Lab but reclaimed it in March uh, the following year to have it shift to the FBI crime lab in Washington, D.C. Within a few weeks, DNA from the skull was matched to Walker's children who had provided DNA samples. So basically they figured out through the process of in, in, uh, elimination by taking all samples from everybody in the family. Um, it's doubtful, though, we'll be able to conclude how she died. If Davis was responsible, his habit of picking up pro- prostitutes and choking them may not be detectable on the bones um so yeah so so and i misspoke earlier i think i was thinking of of the other woman um um who had jenny miles jenny miles jenny miles was found in a shallow grave whereas the d yeah yeah. so the dna they did link jenny miles but not um not cheryl but you know they're they were both victims of Arlie Ray, and they do believe that he killed that both of them. Um, and then the last victim is Cheryl Murray, or a.k.a. Cheryl Smith. Um, she was born in 1951. She's been mis- missing since April of 1994. She was 43 years old at the time she went missing. Maria was last seen in Peoria, Illinois on April 1st, 1994, and she's never been heard from again. This was another one that I really didn't find any information on. Yeah, we didn't even, I didn't even find anything that said whether or not she would have been considered a prostitute. So these last people that we mentioned, we mentioned them in reverse order of when they had gone missing. So if Mm -hmm. you think about it, if she had been a prostitute, he went from prostitutes living high-risk lifestyles to branching out to just opportunities yeah you will and you know yeah what a lovely guy so it's very it's sad um that he killed all these women and well they're pretty sure he killed all these women and you know they will probably never get the justice they deserve but at least he's no longer on this earth and killing anybody else correct (laughs) so yeah real winner there um no i just it's it's like you kind of go back and you look and you go, this is a guy who, you know, he really wasn't all that great. Mm-hmm. He, he dropped out of high school in 10th grade. Um, he didn't get, he didn't go back and get his GED. He, he did do some odd jobs, did janitorial and other things, but he seemed to just keep going back and mooching off of his mom. Yeah. And charging he never... her credit cards. Didn't have a lot of aspirations in life, obviously. And, you know seem to uh, hang around other people who maybe didn't have a lot (laughs) other than drinking and going to bars and (laughs) 
Not to say that drinking and going to bars is a terrible thing, but no. if that's your only thing you do. Yeah. Not not such a good thing, maybe. Yeah. So um, well, that's it for this week's episode. Uh thank you for listening to Nothing Happens in a Small Town, where things do, do happen, happen and small towns are not the quiet, quiet places you think they are. So you can uh, check out our Patreon page if you want to donate and help us get some new equipment. And <laughs> We've been having some interesting issues yeah. with my microphone. So here and there, if I'm a little quieter or breathing on you, it seems like I have to eat the microphone. I don't know. We'll and figure it out. We're, we're still in progress of working all these kinks out but we do have day jobs too so you know trying to figure it all out we'll get there eventually but if you would like to donate and help us out our patreon page is at www.patreon.com slash nothing happens in a small town our instagram user profile is nothing happens in a small town our Twitter profile is Nothing, Nothing Happens in a Small Town at N-H-I-A-S-T, standing for Nothing Happens in a Small Town. Our Facebook page is Nothing Happens in a Small Town or N-H-I-A-S-T 2021. And our Gmail is Nothing Happens in a Small Town at gmail.com. And we are still taking, if anybody wants to give us some ideas of some things to look at, we actually have a couple. Yes. Thank you to uh, my friend Doris and my father for uh, making some suggestions. But if anybody else is interested, please, you know, send us an email. Tell us, uh, tell us what case you would like to hear about and we'll see what we can do. Thank you very much. Thank you. Bye.